If you will turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy, I want to read what should be a familiar passage to you by now. 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning with verse 8 through verse 14. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. This is the word of the Lord. Father, as we come to the word this morning, we pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes, help us to see what you have here for us. May he open our minds to understand. May he open our hearts to receive and embrace your word. May the Lord Jesus Christ be exalted and honored in our thoughts and in my speech this morning. For we ask it in his name. Amen. When I was a boy, well, I'll be honest, even now, I, I, I used to love watching Superman. Anybody know who Superman is? Uh, he's been sort of recycled, you know. He's now the Man of Steel, the movie, and all that kind of thing. But I used to love watching that because, you know, somewhere down, I think in all of our hearts, there is this, this conviction that we were born to be great. And there is just something about watching Superman overcoming unbelievable odds, uh, defeating super powerful enemies. And, you know, there's always got to be just that one point in the plot where you're really not sure they're gonna, he's going to be able to pull it off. Superheroes. Superheroes. We love them. They've gotten a little darker recently. In terms of character, you know, they've got their dark side. But there is still something in us that craves those heroes, that sees in them a picture of what perhaps 
if circumstances had been different, we could at least approach, if not attain. I think it says something about our culture and about our day, who our heroes are. In an earlier day, say the period of time of the, the early colonies in the United States, the superheroes came from their media. And their media was basically books. They had two books. Almost every household in the American colonies had two books. One was the Bible. The other, any of you know what it was? Pilgrim's Progress. Thank you. And there was a third. that was perhaps even more common than Pilgrim's Progress, Fox's Book of Martyrs. Because not everyone agreed with Pilgrim's theology, by the way. <laughs> Fox's Book of Martyrs becomes... It, those were the heroes. Those were the stories of the heroes of the Reformation and the period immediately following. Real-life superheroes, but a little bit different than Superman. Because they were, they were enabled not by some kind of superpower or by some kind of secret spider bite or something like that. They were enabled to do superhuman things by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it was stated very clearly that it was God working through them that enabled them to do what they did. We come to the passage this morning, and in case it has escaped you up until this point. This is Reformation Sunday. This is the last Sunday in October. It is the Sunday that we uh, always, as a church that is true to the Reformed faith, we set aside to remember the Protestant Reformation. To remember superheroes. But you know, not really. Because these reformers, both men and women, were like us. Human, frail, sometimes mistaken. Yes, yes, even Calvin was mistaken at times. You can stone me for that later. But we rightly celebrate them because of what they did in their generation. A faithfulness to the gospel that has echoed down through the centuries four to five hundred years, and we still 
benefit. Now, it may not seem like this passage is a Reformation passage, but I want to suggest to you very quickly, because I have to be quick, I want to suggest to you that it it truly is. Because what we have here is we have the essence of the Reformation. Here's the problem. We tend to look at the Reformation as a once-for-all event. We have a tendency to look at it and memorialize it. Remembering is not wrong. But we erect this monument to the Protestant reformers and we're continually looking back to them and saying, Oh, the reformers. How we love them. How we revere them how we find in their writings, and yes, I get as caught up as anyone, in the glories of the institutes of the Christian religion, which if you haven't read, I'd suggest you do it sometime. It will take you a while. But it's glorious. Less a memorial than a measurement a standard, if you will, a standard of faithfulness to the Word of God. And that's where this passage takes us. Because Paul in 2 Timothy is speaking to his son in the faith, and he is at that point in prison, and he is ready to be offered. He says that. I'm ready As the choir just sang, I'm almost home. I'm almost home. But he speaks to Timothy and he says, I have something I want to remind you of before I go. And in this passage I find four things. Four things that tie directly to the Protestant Reformation, but also tie directly to us. Because you see, we don't understand the Reformation if we do not realize that we also are reformers. We also must be faithful in our generation. Let me just suggest them to you. And they all start with M so you can remember them perhaps. The first is the message. The message of the Reformation is stated plainly here. Their message was nothing more and nothing less than the simple biblical gospel. This was what they taught. And for that, like Paul, and we'll get to this a little bit more later, but for that, for teaching that simple gospel, they suffered. They were accused of being innovators. They were accused of ignoring 1,500 years of church history. But during those 1,500 years, the church, at least the institutional church, had largely departed from that gospel. You remember we talked before about the swing that we have in our own lives between, on the one hand, perfectionism, and on the other hand, purgatory. 
Whenever we try to deal with sins, we either ignore them or in some way we try to pay for them. Well, that's not just an individual tendency. That's a tendency within churches as well. That's a tendency within theology. As you study church history, you will see that pendulum swing back and forth. And more often than not, it swings in the direction of what today we would call legalism. It swings in the direction of purgatory. It swings in the direction of paying somehow, doing something that will appease God for our sin. And that was where the institutional church was at the outset of the Protestant Reformation. There were these numerous ways by which you could appease God and, although it sounds strange to our ears, purchase or earn grace. And yet in God's kindness, there were threads within the culture that were leading people back to the Word of God. And I I have to be careful here because as a historian, I want to turn this into a lecture on the coming of the Protestant Reformation. I dare not. Some of you will fall asleep on me. But what happened in God's providence is that more and more people began to study the Word of God, not in Jerome's Latin translation, but rather in this new which was really old, translation in the Greek. This new Greek New Testament. Greek study, you see, had become sort of faddish over the last hundred years or so. And so all the scholars now were Greek scholars, and they were studying the Greek New Testament, which had been published by Erasmus and which was readily available to scholars. And just as an example of what they found, they discovered that Jerome had mistranslated the word metanoia. When Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel, Jerome translated that in the Latin as do penance and believe the gospel. The reformers went back, they saw metanoia, and they said, wait a minute, that means repent. It doesn't mean do penance. And by simply teaching that, the entire foundation of sacramental theology crumbled. The Greek New Testament in particular, was the foundation of much of the Protestant Reformation. But they found the gospel everywhere. They looked all through the Bible. It was there. So while this does not say, this text, Protestant Reformation on it, let me just suggest to you as we've read through it some of the things it teaches us about the gospel. It teaches us, for example, that we can be certain of our salvation who saved us past tense, and that it is always accompanied by holiness and called us 
to a holy calling. It teaches us that salvation is not because of our works, but because of what Christ has done. It teaches us that God's eternal purpose lies at the foundation of our salvation. It teaches us that God's grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And that the gospel is manifested in the person of Christ Jesus himself in his death and resurrection. It teaches us, this passage does, that if we are in Christ, death no longer applies to us. Not in the same way. Its power is gone. Instead, life reigns within us. A life which makes us immortal. You know, this message just stated there in the last two minutes, that message changed the world. The Reformers preached that message and it changed the way that people fought. Because instead of focusing on earning salvation, they began to focus on manifesting salvation. And it released spirituality from an inward preoccupation into outward action. This good news, this gospel freed them to take risks for Christ and for the gospel. Now I must hasten on. There's also a means, a means that is here. Not just a message, but also a means. And Paul states the means very clearly. He says that he was, if you will, called, appointed, put in place to do three things. To preach, to go, and to teach. That's what he means when he says, for this I was appointed, a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. Preacher is who Paul saw himself as being, a herald of the Word of God. Apostle, and just a brief note here. We have so desired to protect the uniqueness of the twelve apostles that at times we tend to downplay the reality that apostleship continues on. That there is a sense in which apostleship, which simply means to be sent out, to be sent as a delegate. Uh, In Latin, the word is missio. And since our language is largely Latin-based, we talk about missionaries. It's that same idea. People who were sent. Well, the reformers were sent. You know the story. Calvin didn't want to go to Geneva. He was there for two and a half, three years, and they kicked him out, and he raised his hands and said, Hallelujah, I'm gone. And after five years, God sent him back. And he went with great reluctance. 
to the place that God used him in tremendous ways. There were many sent ones among the reformers as well. And then, of course, preaching and teaching. This is how it was done. How did they, so few of them, how did they influence so many? By doing the same thing Paul did, preaching and going and teaching. They did, however, have a technology that helped them. The printing press was there. And so it expanded their outreach, if you will. But in every age, not just in the apostolic age, not just in the Reformation, but even in our age, God is still calling and gifting and sending out those that He wants to teach this message. And you are one of them as am I. This is our calling. This is what we are sent to do. Some of us are sent to our homes. Others are sent overseas. But we are all sent. God is the same God still. The message is the same. The method is the same. Thirdly, I find a motivation. There's a message, there's a method, or a means, and then there's a motivation. There's a motivation. Why would Paul put himself in for this? I mean, it's, it's, it's actually sort of a glib statement, isn't it? He says, well, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. He almost passes over it as if it was nothing, which, quite frankly, I believe for Paul it was. It was part of the package. Here's where it starts to get a little sticky. Now, most of you have been with me up until this point, except for a couple of you back there. But now we get, we get to this idea of suffering, and as Americans we sort of go, ooh, not me. I'm out. I don't want to hear that part. You do realize that the, the American experience has been very unique in the course of church history. To have a place, a country, that has for so many years not only allowed, but even encouraged and abetted the growth of the church and the teaching of the gospel has been very unique in the course of church history. And today as we watch some of those things begin to erode, we grieve. And I think rightly. But you know, our brethren over the centuries were faithful in contexts that were much more difficult than ours. As I teach in Africa, 
I find many times it is much easier for them to identify with the passages in Scripture that talk about suffering than it is for us. Because that's, for some of them, that's a reality. Sadly, they look at our experience and think that that is normative. And so they conclude that if they are suffering, they're doing something wrong. But Paul says, that's why I suffer as I do. And I am not ashamed. I take that to mean that Paul never stopped and said to himself, where did I go wrong? (laughs) This is hard. There's an awful lot of pain and suffering and beatings and stonings. And and I must have taken a wrong turn somewhere. Never asks that. Because his mind is filled and focused on his hero, Christ. And he realizes that as Christ went, so would he. He goes on to say, and here's the motivation. How can he say I'm not ashamed? He can say that because in the next phrase he says, I know, I know what I believe. Is that what he says? I know what I believe. I'm a good, reformed Christian. It's not what he says. I know whom. Objective case. I know whom. I know the one I have believed. He's referring to Christ. I know whom I have believed, and I am confident that he is able to guard and protect what has been entrusted to me. Remarkable, remarkable statement. Paul is saying, in essence, I am not indispensable. Christ can guard the gospel with or without me. but I have the privilege of being a partner with him in that guarding and in that teaching. Their motive, Paul's motive, the reformers, I think, for most cases, their motive was Christ. They loved Christ. They knew whom they had believed And regardless of what pressure or what threats were levied against them, they were unmovable. Not in themselves, not as some superman, but immovable because their eyes were fixed on Christ. And they were part of a larger picture 
a much larger picture. One of the things that we as Americans struggle with is we tend to think that life begins when we are born and it ends when we die. And that's the sum total of the world. That's reality. Christ makes it bigger than that. Loyalty to Him makes it bigger than that. Paul saw a bigger picture. The Reformers saw a bigger picture. And my hope is that at the end of this sermon, you will not only see a bigger picture, but be committed to a bigger picture. Because there are generations yet to come. And this is where Paul takes it. He reminds Timothy of the, of the, the, the message that he is to be proclaiming. He, he reminds him of the means, the method by which it is to be proclaimed. He reminds him and points directly in his own experience to the motivation. The motivation is not fame. It is not success. Paul wasn't very successful. Not in the world's terms. He did not have the largest church. I don't think it even occurred to him. But then he uses all of that to point Timothy in the direction of the mandate. And this is where it's time for you to sit up and perk up. All right? What's the mandate? Well, it's right there in the text. The mandate says, and this is what Paul says to Timothy, follow the pattern of sound words. Follow the pattern. Timothy had traveled with Paul as Paul taught and taught and preached and traveled and went and taught some more and preached and, oh, by the way, suffered and persevered in the midst of difficulty. And, and Paul set for Timothy this tableau of this is what the gospel looks like when it's lived out. And he says to Timothy, follow the pattern of sound words which you heard from me. The reformers read that and they said, that's what we'll do. We'll follow the pattern of sound words that we have heard from Paul. The beauty of having the Word of God in written form is that there are only two generations of believers. There are those who are taught by Jesus and there are those whom they teach. So every new generation is in a sense a second generation because we go back not to those who were before us. Hear me on this. It is good for us to remember a Calvin and a Luther and a Knox 
and to look at them and to say these men are paragons of what it means to be a faithful servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we do not look to them as the expositors of all that is true. We look past them. Just as I hope you look past the pastors in this church and don't see us and say, oh, we need to be like them. No, if that's what you think we've failed... The pattern of sound words is not in Dan, it's not in Eric, it's not in Render. It's in the Word of God. It's in the Word of God. The inerrant, Christ-focused words of the Apostle. Follow the pattern. And it is our responsibility and privilege, as it was with the Reformers, to take that pattern and, in a sense, rejuvenate it, reform it, shape it, and bring it to our generation, to our context, to our families. And then Paul just sort of flips it and says the same thing again. He says, by the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within you, guard the good deposit. Well, the good deposit is the gospel. It's the gospel. Same words that Paul used a couple of verses before when he says, he is able to guard what has been committed to me. Same words. Same idea. Now he says to Timothy, you guard it. You guard it. You protect this truth that you have been given. Who do you guard it from? Well, you guard it, obviously, from those who are trying to attack it, from false teachers. Sometimes Paul names names there. I want to suggest that you guard it from yourself, from your own sinful tendencies. We all have a tendency to take the gospel in our particular direction. Guard against that. Maintain the biblical balance. Guard it paradoxically by giving it away, by preaching it, by teaching it. Guard it for the following generations. Let me close with just a really interesting, I thought this was a fascinating testimony. You know how the the Church of England has moved rather dramatically in the direction of modern culture. And uh, one of the things that they have uh, they have spoken very openly about is uh, is the fact that the scripture really ought not to be considered inerrant. I mean there are many things that 
And they are pushing such things as gay rights on the Anglican churches overseas. And the African Anglicans, we just had one in our pulpit a while ago, the African Anglicans made an interesting response. They said, over 200 years ago, you came here and you taught us the gospel. You taught us the word of God. We have not changed. It is you who have changed. And so we have in present day church history this rather unexpected vision of England and the Church of England, once one of the centers of reformational theology, being rebuked by their children for their departure from the gospel. People of God, may the succeeding generations have no reason, no cause to rebuke us. The Reformation is a wonderful, wonderful period of time, but it is not just something to remember but it is also something against which to measure ourselves may God enable us to take up the mandate follow the pattern and guard the gospel let's pray Father thank you thank you that we are the inheritors of such a wonderful inheritance. And yet, we pray that you will enable us to pass on that very inheritance undiminished, perhaps even by your grace increased to our children, our grandchildren. May your church, by your grace and the power of your Spirit, continue to grow and to flourish in every context, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.